0: Hey, I'm Chris Cuomo. Welcome to a bonus hour of primetime. You know, the questionable news, you know, good or bad, it's going to be dependent on the outcome, but 31 states are going to be reopened in some way by the end of the week. None of them appear to have met the White House benchmark expiring tonight that says they should have 14 straight days of declining cases. Why are we the only nation that seems to not be able to bend the curve, or more importantly, because we are bending it, But why aren't we adhering the way other countries that dug out of this did? Look at the Financial Times chart, all right? It tells you everything you need to know. Death tolls are now at their peak or falling in many Western countries. So many have turned a corner with new case numbers in decline. We have the highest number of new cases globally. What are they doing right that we're doing wrong or not doing right enough or not doing long enough. Let's turn uh, to Dr. Ashish Jha. He is director of the Harvard Harvard Global Health Institute and Jeremy Cunandyke, senior policy fellow, Cunandyke. Ah, they gave it to me phonetically, Jeremy. I know your damn name. If they just spelled it normally, I would have been fine. Cunandyke, um, policy fellow with the Center for Global Development. It's good to have you both. Uh, first, um, Jeremy, Uh, From a public policy perspective, am I being unfair uh, to the United States uh, and uh, looking at how other Western countries have dealt with this versus us and looking at the chart that we just put up there? Do you agree with the assessment that uh, we're not doing as well as others?
1: Well, I mean, look, it's clear from the data. Uh, We have been at a plateau for really the whole of the month of April. On the first day of April, we had about 25,000 cases in this country. And today, on the last day, we have 27,000. And through the entire month, we've hovered around those numbers. We've been in that sort of twenty five to 30,000 range. And you know, my fear is that we have, in effect, we have wasted April much like we wasted February. In, in February, we wasted it by failing to prepare for what was coming. Uh, I think here in April, we've wasted it by not taking all the measures we needed to in order to not merely flatten the curve, but actually begin bringing it down. And so what we see is certain states are, are making headway on that. Um, New York is making headway, New Jersey, but others are not. Other states are still going up. And as a country, we are we're basically flat. Um, we have yet to get to the kind of, uh, you know, the kind of public health measures and the kind of you know, serious government effort, frankly, that's going to be needed to bring this back under control.
0: Um, quick follow to you, Jeremy. You're too harsh a grader. Uh, the president says this is a success. Jared Kushner says this is a success, and he's in charge of Middle East peace. Uh, And the reason they say it is that the projections had this much worse. And uh, we stopped the spiking. People stayed home. Case growth is going down. And people are starting to reopen because uh, we're actually uh, flattening the curve. And that's good enough as long as you reopen
1: with uh, smart safety measures. Do you agree with the analysis? No, I, I don't. I mean, we're in a holding pattern. Uh, we're in a holding pattern. We've had a transmission number of one, meaning uh, roughly every case creates one other case. Um, that's better than a reproduction number of three, where every case creates three more cases. But it's not enough to get us anywhere close to zero. You know, if we are at averaging twenty-five to thirty thousand cases, and each one of those is producing one more, we could stay at that number for quite a long time, and and that would mean that in effect, you know, we we've done just enough to freeze it but not enough to, to suppress it, bring it back down, and start getting this country back on the track to reopening our economy. I think we, we are not yet at a point where we can safely reopen, and, and I fear you know, with all that we've done, we've gotten that number down to one case per, per existing case. We need to get it down well below that in order to actually be winning.
0: Um, okay, let's stay with the Socratic, and let me come to you, Doc, uh, Ashish Jha. Um, no. You don't have to get it underneath that. Uh, It's hyper conservative. It's not a perfect world. Um, We have to deal with a certain number of cases. That's the reality. Uh, We're going to reopen in a smart way and it will continue to go down because we'll continue to do smart ish things. And we're going to get a cure soon and we're going to have a vaccine maybe by January. And that's going to really change. And by the way, all our numbers are wrong and there's much more herd immunity than people think. And that's a built in X factor. And we're going to be okay. Don't be so conservative. We don't have to get any lower um, in reproductive uh, reproduction rate than just replication
2: rate than one. We're OK. Yeah, that, that's a that's a great story. It's a, it's a mix of hope uh, and magical thinking. And unfortunately, that's not the reality we have, Chris, uh, the, the reality we have. Uh, as Jeremy has pointed out, is um, we're kind of flat here, and flat is not good. We want to bring the case numbers down. Remember, we were flat through all of April, and almost sixty thousand Americans died during that month. We don't want to be replicating that in May. We don't want to be replicating that in June. Um, I think that um, we can open up when the data says we can, uh, and that means that case numbers have to decline substantially. Testing has to get up substantially, and then if we open up, we can stay open. If we open now. We are going to find ourselves with exploding case numbers, hospitals overwhelmed, and having to get shut down again. And that's what we have to try to avoid.
0: So the pushback becomes uh, harder to make, but let me, uh, let me bring it this way, which is I understand the logic, but it has not played out in practice. The, ho- the hospitals have been able to handle it. They weren't supposed to be able to handle it as long as they have, and in a lot of places, Uh, You have New York City, still very hard pressed. A lot of those hospitals uh, are burning the midnight oil, not in Nassau County, not in Suffolk County, not once you get outside the city. So there's a relativism that we didn't expect and you are not giving full benefit to. Is that a fair pushback? That, okay, we won't open everywhere the same way, but we don't have to do
2: this as conservatively as you cats want everywhere. Well, so I'll give you half a point on that one. Here's the thing. There are states... Montana, Wyoming, Alaska, um, where they have very, very few cases. Their testing is good, not where it should be, but pretty good. And if those states opened up carefully, I'd say that's probably okay. Um, But large parts of the country, Georgia, certainly not. Uh, Texas and Florida, that's not where the data are. So um, are there any places in America that can open up safely and carefully? I think there are. Um, but there are large parts of America that cannot, and this is not just a New York story.
0: Vaccine in January, Jeremy. Where's the love? Why are you know, Why are hey. you feeling that? I
1: mean, that changes the game, doesn't it? No one would be happier than me uh, to see that happen. But uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to start counting those chickens before they hatch. I mean, I'm glad to see. Uh, that the government is is doing this sort of a big push uh, the warp speed plan as they call it to, to generate a vaccine um, the, the New York Times had a really good piece today laying out just how difficult that would be uh, I have yet to see a, a good explanation from the government of how they plan to compress the timeline that much uh, you know the, the the hard part to compress here is the the human trials and you just you you have to take a certain amount of time for human trials in order to ensure that, you have a vaccine that is both safe and effective, and that's very, very hard to compress. That's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty fixed amount of time. Um, you know, I think it's a good idea that they're talking about trying to manufacture at the same time or at least build the manufacturing capacity so they're ready to go. Great that they're doing that. What I'm frustrated by is you know, that they can invest in warp speed For vaccine, but they're not investing in warp speed for testing. They're not investing in warp speed for contact tracing. Those are the things that could pay off now that could begin bringing numbers down now, not making us wait till January before we get some, you know, hoped for miracle that may or may not pan out.
0: All right, that I have a problem with. Uh, I'm pushing back on because I can't believe that the best we can come to the Rosie the Riveter mentality of Desperate Times, Desperate Measures is one company in Maine, love Maine, don't get me wrong, but one company in Maine making the swabs with the polyurethane tips. One is all we've been able to figure out. That's just a bad fact. I don't understand why the desperation isn't there on the PPE side and the testing side. But... It's extraordinary. Here's your problem, Ja. I'm not going to I'm not going to have you grade me with half a point. Here it comes. Now, this is where you lose fatigue. You guys are not paying attention to the biggest metric fatigue. We've had it. That's what the president is banking on, that if he keeps giving these little suggestions, I don't even know the testing is necessary. You should liberate your states. You know, it doesn't matter what he says. Uh, about testing being good and tracing being good when he floats that out there he's feeding the fatigue you saw what happened in Michigan today uh, Dr. Ja. people are scared they want to get back to work people die people get sick it's part of reality Uh, we're not going to all die we're not going to all get sick we're past the fear and we want to get back to life so we can take care of our families that could be tough to overcome no matter what the numbers are thoughts on that
2: Yeah. So, you know, you give me the president and those protesters in Michigan, and I'll give you the American people as my response. Uh, Latest surveys, 80 to 90 percent of Americans say they are not comfortable going back to work. They're not comfortable sending their kids to school. They're not comfortable going to a restaurant without additional testing, without additional evidence that it is safe to do so. So I see the small minority that's loud that says, let's get going. And I even sympathize with them. But the vast majority of Americans are saying not until it's safe and it's not going to be safe until we have a testing regime that can identify people who are sick and uh, isolate them from the rest of society. So everybody else uh, can go about their daily business. So that's where the American people are. And I think they're being really smart about this.
0: All right, gentlemen, thank you very much, Jeremy. Canine Dyke, not nine, but six months, they're saying we may get a vaccine. We'll see if that happens and if it changes it. Uh, And Dr. Jha, thank you very much. You do uh, rightly cite the polls, uh, but patience wanes and often outrage gains. And we'll see if that comes to play in this situation in terms of pushing action. I I appreciate your perspective. Thank you very much, guys. Stay blessed, stay healthy. All right, a region uh, that is exercising caution as others are relaxing their rules. You're going to see these kinds of dichotomies, these kinds of splits, and we have to examine them as to why they're happening and what the net effect is. Massachusetts extended its stay home orders. Why, when everybody else is pushing to go in a different direction, 21 states reopening, why not them? The mayor of Boston, next. So this is an interesting piece of information that goes against the reopen now trend. The Massachusetts governor, Governor Charlie Baker, extended the stay at home order there until May 18th. Now, even before that was announced, Boston's mayor had made clear his city wasn't going to open reopen anytime soon. We have the mayor, uh, Marty Walsh, joining us now. Uh, Welcome to Prime Time, sir. Thank you for taking the opportunity. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me um i know the city uh i know the anxiety level there is real as well and they're hearing people and watching people reopen uh why do you not feel the fervor
3: because it's not the right thing to do and and my job right now is to keep people safe uh and and keep people alive and 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 rushing what i'm seeing happening in other states around the country uh quite honestly and talking to a lot of those mayors. you had one of them on today Atlanta. Uh, they know it's the wrong thing to do. Uh, people are afraid. I heard your other guests prior to, to me being on as well. Uh, they make some good points. But at the end of the day, my responsibility as mayor of the city of Boston and our responsibility as governors is, is to keep our people safe. Uh, we're in the midst of a pandemic like, like we've never seen. None of us have ever lived through. Uh, and, and it's our responsibility to do the right thing.
0: But the president is beating a drum that people are listening to. Pockets. But angry enough to you know do what they did in Michigan today, which was a pretty ballsy move by protest. You know means going right after the governor's office. Uh, my money is short. I need this for my family. Life isn't perfect. Uh, don't make the cure worse than the disease. What's your response?
3: Well, that's why you know the the, the stimulus bill or uh, the recovery act came to Congress uh, with, with extended unemployment benefits for, for three months. Uh, That's why our legislature and governor uh, are passing legislation around moratoriums on evictions for the next three months. And I think that there has to be a well thought out plan on how we move, how we get business back on back going here. Uh, I understand the small businesses, the restaurants, the golf courses, the flower shops, uh, all of those businesses that are hurting in my district and my city. Um, I know my businesses of color are disproportionately affected by this as well uh, because they have less operating cash. But it really, we have to be very careful uh, because one of your previous guests said, if, if we do this wrong, and I hope to God down those states it never doesn't happen to them, that the second surge is worse, where our emergency rooms and our hospitals will be overwhelmed. I mean, Boston, Massachusetts, we, we built extra space in our convention center, uh, like New York did for additional capacity. We have people in there. We've been able to come up with a plan to, to, to kind of shelter our homeless folks so that as they get COVID, we, they have a safe place to go. Uh, we've been able to send Chromebooks home to our with our kids and teach them e-learning. Uh, but if if we get it wrong, the next September and October, we're in a situation that's even worse, going to be even more detrimental to the economy. Uh, and the president's going to wish at that point th- that that he shut things down a lot earlier and kept it a little extended because it's going to be right up right up at his election.
0: What do you say to the pushback that you know what? Uh, turns out that this wasn't as bad
3: as they said it was going to be. Do you believe that there's
0: a basis for that suggestion at this time?
3: No, too many people have lost their life. There's too many people in the hospitals right now that are seriously ill. Uh, Too many families have, have buried loved ones. It's just, you know, you look at it, if we didn't do all the social distancing and the physical distancing, uh, the numbers certainly would be worse. If we didn't have uh, the world-class hospitals that we have here in the United States of America, the numbers would have been worse. Uh, and, and I think that I think a lot of work has been done uh, to, to actually spare a lot of, uh, save a lot of life. Uh, and I think if if we don't continue down the same path that we're doing here in Boston, in Massachusetts, and all across the country, uh, then we're going to be in a worse situation. And at the end of the day, for me. Uh, you know, I made in the very beginning of this. I made decisions canceling the parade, St. Patrick's Day parade. Uh, we canceled the marathon. We canceled school. We did a lot of things that some people might not have been been been, uh, been supportive of, uh, but certainly now, fast forward not that long, eight eight weeks later, uh, we have nearly 10,000 cases of coronavirus in in, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, and we have over 300 people that have lost their life. Uh, why would I now change course? And open things up when when all I could see it getting worse down the road.
0: What are you picking up in terms of the shift in feel? Uh, You mentioned something that may fly past a lot of people, but not me because I've been following this. Uh, People are starting to make homeless a touchstone for their frustration. I hear too many people talking about homeless like they were rats. Uh, In New York City, they're talking about how many homeless are on the trains because the shelter system is breaking down and there's no capacity and they can't be in the hospitals right now. There's nowhere for them to go in New York City. You made special accommodations for the homeless. Uh, And that was a humane thing, but also tactical thing, because people start using that as an index that things have gone too far. What are you picking up in your city in terms of people's feelings about how long this has gone and
3: what the right thing to do is? You know, I think there's definitely no question a segment of the population that wants to go back to work. And some people think that this isn't as serious as Mm -hmm. it is. But I think the greater majority of people are really concerned. You you made a point with the last guest talking about schools. Um, One of the things that that I saw happen really fast here in Boston was as soon as uh, we got to five or six coronavirus cases, people started panicking about having kids in schools. Well, let's just a quick newsflash. By September, when schools restart, that will have been six months where our kids have not been in a physical school in Boston. And if we don't take all the precaution today... Well, you know what? There's going to be more coronavirus in September and there'd be a chance that our kids don't go back to school. And that's not going to help our society. That's not going to help our children. That's not going to help a whole lot. And I think that we have to continue to take this very seriously right now. Uh, We don't have that negative necessarily, um, you know, labeling of our homeless population because we did uh, build out space uh, for quarantine for additional space in our shelter so they could self uh, kind of physical distance. And we have uh, at the Convention Center and at Boston Medical Center, we have some hospital beds with healthcare for the homeless, for our homeless that are COVID net positive. Well, you
0: guys earned the uh, hashtag Boston Strong. And this is a very different kind of test uh, than the one you already showed. Amazing, amazing endurance to make it through. Uh, but we'll be watching your city because once again, You are doing things uh, that call for strength uh, during a time of great fear uh, and, frankly, weakness. Mayor Walsh, uh, stay blessed, stay healthy, and please be aware you have this platform. It's a phone call away to tell people how it's going and why you're doing what you're doing.
3: Thanks, Chris. It's good to see you better. Uh, uh, Watching you uh, go through this was really interesting to see and uh, and hope you and your family are blessed. Stay safe as well. and God bless you. Thank you. It became a proof positive that I am the weak link in my
0: family because uh, the missus and my son blew right through it and it knocked me down like I was nothing. So thank you very much, Mr. Mayor. Appreciate the good word. All right. 30 million Americans have a filed for unemployment. 30 million. All right. That is obviously contextually the biggest number that we've seen since the Great Depression. It's 20 percent of the workforce. So that's why I keep saying I am not trivializing the desire to come back. I'm not saying it's about a burger and a beer. That's part of it, but I get that money is tight. I get that people's families uh, are jeopardized by this, not just their health, but wellness as a function of their financial stability. I get it. The White House predicts a rocking economy by July. How, how the heck could that ever happen? One of our great financial minds, next. Right. Tomorrow is going to bring a terrible new meaning to May Day Uh, for many families across America. It's going to mean almost panic as people have to file for unemployment and money is short and feeding families is a challenge. Again, this is not just about wanting to reopen for a burger and a beer. Um, That is unfair to families all over this country. Now, somebody who can put in perspective Uh, What this means for our economy, how fast you can get it back, what that would take and what the need is right now for those families. She's actually working not just on an analysis, but on answers, financial expert and a lot more. Alexis Glick. It's great to have you back on primetime, my friend. It's great to see you, Chris. So 30 million Twenty percent of the workforce uh, filing unemployment, most since the Great Depression. What do these numbers mean in terms of economic impact and hardship?
4: It just demonstrates, Chris, the degree of the catastrophe that we have truly witnessed in our economy. It's completely unprecedented times. We've never seen anything like this. The rate of job losses is completely unprecedented. To contextualize it, Chris, just to give you an idea, during the Great Recession, in December of 2007 through June of 2009, we lost about 9 million jobs. It has taken us, since June of 2009, up until early last month, 22 million jobs were created in that time duration, in about a decade so, to contextualize the idea of losing 30 million jobs in six weeks. And the belief is from many economists that we are actually shortchanging that number, that there are upwards of maybe 10 million more who have not been able to file claims or who have given up. The expectations, of course, that those numbers are going to rise in the coming weeks and that we will see an unemployment rate like we've never seen since the Depression.
0: But it's going to be rocking in July.
4: Yeah, I wish, you know, um, rose-colored glasses look awfully great when you put them on, but the reality is we're not living in a rose-colored glasses environment. As you and I both know, right now, this staggered return back to work and the risks that you just talked about with the mayor of a second or possibly a third wave are going to live with the economy for quite some time. Most economists do predict that we saw the economy contract in the first quarter by 4.8% that we will see a double-digit contraction in Q2, as I mentioned, the worst since the Great Depression, maybe even worse, but that we will see an uptick in growth in the third and fourth quarter. But that is contingent, Chris, on us continuing to pump money into the economy we just listened to the Federal Reserve Chairman Powell speak two days ago. He said, we are putting out a fire. We're trying to continue to win the battle. This means that more stimulus may very well likely be needed. As you know, with your governor, states right now are in trouble. So right now, the critical thing is, let's get the unemployment benefits out to the people as quickly as possible. The Paycheck Protection Program, which is helping small businesses. Those things are critical because when you look at just the those who are employed in the United States, 50 percent, over 50 percent of the private sector jobs come from small businesses. We need to get those guys back in action. But the notion that this economy is going to be booming in July is just not accurate.
0: All right. Let's check a couple of boxes real quick about uh, not just uh, outlining the problem, uh, which is what I do. You find ways to solve it. Uh, you have a huge yes. resource that you guys launched today to make it yes. easier for families to feed their kids. Schools, as you explained to the audience and you taught me before that, uh, it's not just about education, it's about nutrition. Uh, And what is the new resource that families can use uh, to help find a place to feed their kids? Well, so as you
4: and I have talked about before, there's a great misnomer that U.S. public schools are closed. 98,000 U.S. public schools in this nation remain open to feed kids. 30 million kids rely on meals daily, and now that is millions more due to the job losses we've seen over the past six weeks. So today we launched a resource locator. It is at SAP.com forward slash SAP for kids what it is, is it's a national Say representation of all 50 states. Sorry, sorry, all 50 Say states.
0: Again, nobody can think as fast as you just did. What's the what's okay, the address okay. again?
4: So, the okay, put it on so the screen. The so, okay, so it's a mobile enabled web application and it is available as you can see on the screen right there. It is at sap.com forward slash sap for kids What it enables, as you can see on the screen right now, is wherever you are in the country, it's using Google Maps to recognize where you are. You log on, it knows where your location is, and it can tell you any and all school feeding sites in your community. So it will help families and kids find the nearest feeding site near them. The other thing is, over time, we are going to be entering in more available resources, which will include things like financial assistance, things like telemed, um, all these resources that will be for free available to kids and families. But what we have started today, the app right now has 27,000 feeding site locations. By next week, we'll have upwards of 40,000 feeding site locations. And so it's an available tool for families and kids which we which anyone can use through their cell phone on their um, online digitally. And the other thing, Chris, will just reference is there is a place where businesses can share their available resources so that we can match that with the needs and demands of kids and school buildings at this time.
0: Money. It takes money. Last time you were on, you were asking for money. You still need money. You had a record number of schools asking for grants. You're working with the Rockefeller Foundation. How do people get involved and help these places have food, have resources, have people so that people can find those places and get their kids fed?
4: Well, as you just referenced, today was a great day for us, not just because we announced this digital platform, but also we announced a partnership with the Rockefeller Foundation, one of you know the biggest investors in the nation and making sure that no one goes food insecure. But as you referenced, when I joined you four weeks ago and we launched our COVID-19 emergency school nutrition fund, in which we're allowing school buildings to apply for up to $3,000 of grants to get the resources that they need to deliver vital meals. Safely Today, as I sit here, Chris, we have over 11,000 applications from schools, over 30 million in requests from school buildings. We've been able to provide $5 million in resources, but unfortunately, we still sit here with a $25 million deficit. Our frontline workers are the school nutrition professionals, the school bus drivers, the volunteers in the school building. They're the one taking the food out of the cafeteria, giving it in a grab and go, putting it on school buses to deliver it to homes. And right now, those frontline workers need the resources and protective equipment to deliver those meals. Give us the place to go to
0: donate.
4: They can go to genyouthnow.org forward slash donate, or they can text schools to 20222.
0: Schools, two, zero, what?
4: 2022 two two schools, or go to genyouthnow.org forward slash donate. And Chris, we are not going to stop. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for letting me continue to share this story because number one, we need to show families where the nearest school feeding site is. And now with this SAP website, we can do it. And now we have the resources, the vital resources that we need to help schools with Rockefeller Foundation, but we need a lot more help.
0: I'll put it out on the social media so people can get it. Uh, Alexis Glick, thank you very much for helping us understand the situation. And more importantly, uh, thank you for fighting to help solve it. And and by the way, Alexis has been doing that while she's been dealing with COVID in her own household. She's been working and figuring out these solutions while dealing with the illness in her house as well. Special person. All right. As we battle one pandemic, health experts are working uh, to help us understand the full scope. I know I've been banging this uh, a lot here, but we have to. Mental health is part of overall wellness. We're seeing it, cities across the country are having record increases in suicide attempts, all right? Why, what can we do about it? What can you and I do about it? I have an expert who knows it better than anyone, next. are not in dispute. Cities across the country are reporting jumps in 911 calls for suicide attempts. The National Distress Hotline is getting 900% more calls compared to this time last year. The only discussion is about how we respond. Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber is the founder and director of the Columbia Lighthouse Project. I rely on her often for perspective on how we deal with mental health in moments of crisis we've never seen anything like this doc what should we be doing right now
5: well we need to put this in in the the perspective that it deserves so 900% increase what does that tell us people are suffering right they're suffering a lot and the but let's understand what we what we know we know the good news chris i'm always starting with the good news suicide is preventable this is not an inevitable outcome. Mental health issues like depression and anxiety are treatable. So what and, and, and what, do, what have we learned? What do we know about how to do that? OK, let's remember in terms of the magnitude where we started, what our baseline was before this pandemic. Right. It took suicide takes more firemen than fire, more police than crime, more soldiers than combat, more lives than car accidents. Depression, its biggest cause, is the number one cause of global disability. But again, the good news is we know how to treat. But this pandemic brings with it a tsunami of risk factors, you know, the perfect storm. We know that with economic downturns in the past, they track in rate and pace with the suicide rate. We know that isolation and loneliness is a huge risk factor. Did you know that the CDC tells us that one of the most important things we can do to prevent suicide is connecting, connectedness, right? And so it's such a critical thing to remember now. What we have to understand is that social distancing and quarantine does not inevitably mean social isolation. So what what do we need to do? we need to connect and what we know in terms of mental health issues being treatable telepsychiatry and telehealth is incredibly effective but you might only get that once a week so what does that mean it means we have to rely much more on peer-to-peer peers helping each other we've learned that from from other wartime scenarios we've been in from other mass traumas that peer-to-peer help and connection is one of the most important things you can do. So right now we need to reach out. We need to be here for each other. And, and what does that mean reaching out? Okay. How do, you know, people suffer in silence. The 900% increase that are calling the crisis lines have a will to do that, but very often people won't. We knew before this, Chris, that we had to find people where they live because they often don't have the will to come to you. So we need to ask routinely. We need to ask our friends, check in with our neighbors about and be direct. How are you doing? Ask specific questions about whether they're feeling suicidal, right? That's what we know. And, and let me just give you the perspective, lest anyone doubt the impact of connecting Do you know there was a study that showed the opposite, that loneliness is equivalent to smoking 15 cigarettes a day? It can be more lethal than heart disease and obesity, right? So this is the good news. We can connect, we can connect people to the care they need. And by the way, you know what we've learned from other mass traumas? That that's not only gonna help them, it's gonna help you as well. We know that in these desperate times, What we can do to help ourselves is find meaning and purpose in our lives and help. Where do we go to find
0: out the how do we learn how to do that? Tell people where to go, because you've already set out uh, the right questions to ask and a series of if thens ask this question. If they say this, go to this. Where do people go to get the ways to help connect?
5: Yes, so you can go to, um, it's called the Columbia Protocol, and it's cssrs.columbia.edu, and it gives you very simple questions that anybody can ask and gives you the next steps. You know, in the past, people didn't know what to ask. They didn't know what to do with the answers, and they didn't even know if it was going to be harmful to ask somebody. It's actually the opposite. When people are suffering, they want help, and they feel a relief and distress when you actually do ask.
0: Now, Kelly Posner however, happens to be a very close friend of mine and the missus. Uh, and one of the things I love about her is that not only is she a psychiatrist par excellence who got the highest civilian honor uh, for her work in this area, but she can interview herself. And that's why we can make so much out of so little time, uh, because she knows the right questions and the answers. Thank you for walking us through this and doing so quickly. I will put out on social media how to get to the website for the Columbia Protocol. And it's only referred to that now because I kept mangling the name of the Lighthouse Project. So now she just went with that because I kept getting it wrong on television. (laughs) Kelly, thank you very much for helping us understand how to deal with such an obvious and severe need. We've ignored it for too long. We can change it ourselves. Thank you.
5: Very grateful, Chris, to be here.
0: All right. So, an important update on a fight that we showcased the other week for some of our most essential workers. People who are putting food on our tables are among the most vulnerable when it comes to contracting COVID. We have guests who have been heard, and there are some big developments next. Here's a fact. More than two million farm laborers are keeping you and me, all of us fed. Now, nearly two weeks ago, the coalition of Immokalee workers in Florida told me, if you might remember, about the lack of health care, jam-packed conditions, thousands of workers there face. They don't have the testing. They don't have anything that they need. Time bomb. Good news. Florida's governor, has heard their pleas. A testing site is opening in Immokalee Sunday. Now, is it enough? We're watching. Why? Together as ever as one. Thank you for watching. Stay tuned. The news
2: continues here on CNN.